Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And, Jim, folks might be wondering if we're going to talk about the start of the NFL season. No. No. No, we're not. So, uh... <laughs> did, did the NFL season start? I, um, I, I thought uh, professional teams uh, would, would be play, and I didn't see anything professional on Sunday. So, <laughs> That's one way to put it. Yes, exactly. So... Uh, we're off to the starts we're unfortunately accustomed to, but uh, we'll see how it goes from here. All right, on to the uh, first martini, the good martini. This is courtesy of the Boston Globe. And you might be wondering at first why this is the good martini, but don't worry. We'll explain. Tom Steyer, the billionaire and former hedge fund investor turned impeachment activist, became the 11th Democratic presidential candidate to qualify for the October debates on Sunday after a new poll showed him with 2% support in Nevada to make the cut. Candidates must procure donations from 130,000 people and earn 2% support in four qualifying polls. Steyer fell one poll short of qualifying for the third Democratic debate in Houston this week, but the Democratic National Committee's rules allow polls to carry over and count toward qualification for the fourth set of debates. So, Jim, Tom Steyer's way out there on environmental issues. He spent a ton of his own money on trying to drum up a support for an impeachment uh, effort in the House of Representatives, which Nancy Pelosi doesn't think is very politically advantageous to Democrats. So that could be fun to have him on stage talking about that uh, and and some other issues and just to have uh, a guy with bottomless pockets not necessarily going in the direction the party wants him to can be a lot of fun. There are two measuring sticks you can say this is good. If you're a uh, Republican who just wants to see the Democrats have chaos than having one more guy up on stage who is not exactly a whirling dervish of raw political charisma. I'd be exaggerating somewhat to say that he bought his place on stage, but when you've got a bazillion dollars and you can, you know, run as many ads as you like and getting the donor level isn't that hard. You know, you send out enough emails, you send enough messages to enough Democrats, eventually people who you've been, you know, pestering with your bid to promote climate change, you've been pestering with your, we have to impeach the president, you know, sure, fine. Okay, you, you qualified. If you want to believe, like, I, I myself, and I'd like to think I'd, I believe this, even if I didn't have to follow these debates for my job, I like good debates. I like seeing two people with different ideas going up there and saying, this is why my agenda is the best one. This is why I mean, my ideas are the best one. This is why, you know, my ideas will work and yours won't. And it's of substance, right? So you can't have a good debate with 10 people on stage. We've tried it several times. We've had you know, two different debates, each one two nights, uh, with the 20 candidates and the candidates 21 through 26 or whatever, complaining that they were unfairly left off the stage, blah, 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 blah. Look, you know, in the end, you, with 10 people, nobody gets enough time. Nobody gets enough back and forth. Somebody like Andrew Yang ends up speaking for an entire three minutes the first debate that he was in. If you want to have a good debate, you need fewer candidates. And I think that, you know, five, six, seven level is about best. Probably probably five or six is, is about what you could, the max you can have for a good exchange of ideas. This is what we might get if, as it appears, Tom Steyer has qualified they probably won't do 11, and they'll probably split it to five and six. According to that article, Tulsi Gabbard's knocking at the door, so maybe you get two nights of six candidates. As much as I'd rather have only one debate to cover <laughs> instead of two debates over two nights, 
you know what? You're going to get a better debate this way. So actually, in a way, this could end up being better for just, you know, seeing the exchange of the ideas. I also think it's really been kind of fascinating to watch people complaining that that second debate hosted by CNN was somehow too divisive. Greg, they do know it's a debate, right? <laughs> like the purpose of these things is not to make Democrats feel better that all of their major nominees agree on things. The point of a debate is to say, look, maybe we have a lot of good candidates, but I am the best candidate and here's why. And inevitably that's gonna mean drawing contrasts. I mean, they're to say, look, I like Senator so-and-so, uh, I respect him and I'll support him if he gets the nomination, but I'm a better candidate because of X, Y, and Z. And that's what you're supposed to do out there. By the way, some Democrats are really frightened of this. Can't we all just get along? <laughs> Rodney King has a great attitude for LA, but not for presidential debates. Wow. So CNN's being accused of not enough Trump bashing. That's that's a first. I think there was somebody who said, you know, the CNN questions last time appeared to be designed to, you know, stir up fights among candidates. What? It was designed, but like that's that's what you're supposed to get at a debate. If everybody, if you ask one question and the first guy answers and every other person on stage says, I agree, how are Democrats supposed to pick? All right, let's go on to our second martini here, a bad martini. And Jim... This involves Camp David, President Trump, and the Taliban. Here's NBC News White House correspondent Kristen Welker setting up our bad martini. This morning, the president is facing mounting scrutiny after planning and then abruptly canceling a secret meeting with the Afghan government and the Taliban that was set to take place Sunday at Camp David, just days before the anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo out on five Sunday shows defending the strategy. Uh, President Trump ultimately made the decision. He said, I want to talk to President Ghani. I want to talk to these Taliban negotiators. I want to look them in the eye. And insisting Camp David was an appropriate location to host the Taliban, a group which harbored the al-Qaeda terrorists behind the September 11th attacks. Did anybody bring up uh, whether it was appropriate to have the Taliban set foot on Camp David? Well, there were lots of discussions around that. Uh, Camp David has a long history, an important history, and it's also had an important role in complex peace negotiations, sometimes with some pretty bad actors, as you well know. Pompeo indicating the talks are now dead for the time being after the president dramatically called off the meeting Saturday night. Mr. Trump saying because the Taliban admitted to a car bombing in Kabul that killed Army Sergeant First Class Ellis Barreto and 11 other people. So there you go, Jim. Uh, from what we're hearing, the State Department thought this was a good idea. Not surprisingly, John Bolton did not think this was a good idea. And obviously you don't either because it's our bad martini today. I suppose you could say the good news is that they did not go forward with this. Um, I don't think that outweighs the fact that this was on the table for a while. Um, and it sounds like, according to the reporting to the New York Times today, this was the president's idea. When you're sitting there thinking, who in the world would think it would be a good idea to bring the Taliban to Camp David, apparently the commander in chief. Um, now, you and I have talked about Afghanistan quite a bit on this podcast lately. I don't think we're going to be in a better shape if we withdraw all of our troops. I think the Taliban is almost certain. Look, there's already ISIS working in Afghanistan right now. The Taliban will protect them. The Taliban has not recognized it is wrong to attack the United States of America. They have not uh, renounced their past hosting of al-Qaeda or anything like that. They made their choice, and they've stuck to their choice, and they are still continuing to fight us, despite the argument of, oh, it wasn't the Taliban that attacked us on 9-11, it was al-Qaeda. Well, okay, except the Taliban were the landlords. The Taliban were the guys who said, no, no, you guys go ahead and set up the training camps. You know, uh, We're fine with that, we're cool with that. And you may recall, right before the uh, invasion of Afghanistan, 
President George W. Bush said to the Taliban, we can avoid this war if you turn these guys over. The Taliban said no. They have to live with the consequences, or I should say they have to die with the consequences. Now, here's the thing. People have said this is the forever war. It's been going on so long. We're not, you know, we're going around in circles. We're not making any progress. We don't have reliable allies in the ground in Afghanistan. Look, these are, there are some fair arguments in there. If you want to leave Afghanistan, leave Afghanistan. Don't go through the motions of this charade of a, of a negotiation with a partner who doesn't have the decency to stop blowing up car bombs during your press conference announcing that you think you've got an agreement in principle. That's what ultimately was, you know, that, that made Trump decide to back away from this. And while that was the right decision, these are the same Taliban that they were two days ago. Before they did that, they set off that bomb that killed an American serviceman. Like, there are a whole bunch of American servicemen who've been killed at the hands of the Taliban. This didn't just happen. You know, it's not like they, oh, they were really reasonable. And then all of a sudden they did this. I'm glad the president backed away. If you, if you really want to get rid of this president, if you really want to impeach this president, this is the sort of material where I think you could build a broad bipartisan consensus to say, Mr. President, if you're seriously thinking about hosting the Taliban and you want to have some sort of, you know, Camp David Accord-like moment where you come out and shake hands or something like that, then no, you don't understand. You know, if you want to leave Afghanistan, go right ahead. But don't go through this process of pretending that the Taliban are some kind of serious partner in peace. And the fact that you were entertaining this notion suggests that you've ignored everything you've ever been briefed on, everything you've ever been told about the Taliban to make this kind of egregious misjudgment. Um, if you want to go after, go after them on that, Democrats. Don't go after the Sharpie pen or any of this other you know, Looney Tunes stuff they've been doing lately. Greg, this is the kind of decision that makes trying to buy new, uh, Greenland look pretty reasonable. <laughs> well, let me uh, dig into this a little more, because you mentioned the Camp David Accords. That was obviously back in the 70s with President Carter hosting Prime Minister Begin and President Sadat, uh, Israel and Egypt, in a peace accord that is still functioning pretty well right now. Uh, then, of course, in uh, it was the late 90s or maybe even the year 2000, that Bill Clinton brought Yasser Arafat. And I think it was Ehud Barak. It was the Israeli prime minister at the time to Camp David. I'm not sure how much differently one would describe Arafat from the Taliban. That's probably a grist for quite a bit of debate. But ultimately, that did not result in any sort of deal. I don't remember the media having a conniption fit over the fact that Arafat was there, though. So how different are those two examples? Yeah, there were a few, uh, mostly folks who had really you know, followed the Middle East issue and recognized that Arafat was if not an out-and-out -out terrorist himself, then was somebody who was, you know, locking arms with them. But I suppose you could make the argument, okay, you could, there was enough little glimmers here and there to indicate that the Palestinians were interested in talking and having peace. I think the history of this indicated that actually, no, the Israelis ended up putting, if not 95% of what they wanted, 90% of what they wanted on the table. But in exchange, the Palestinians would have to recognize Israel's right to exist, and Arafat wouldn't cross that bridge. Now, it's worth noting that almost everybody who's ever signed a peace treaty with Israel in the Arab world has gotten assassinated shortly thereafter. Maybe there are personal reasons for being where, you know, there's when people say it's hard to make peace. This is why. People ask, where is the Palestinian Gandhi? Well, Hamas, Hezbollah, and the rest of the extremists would have killed them. That's why there's no Gandhi emerging out of this particular group. Regarding the Taliban, if there was some sort of like, hi, I'm an Islamic fundamentalist, and I want to rule Afghanistan the way I believe it should be ruled, However, I genuinely believe we should not be attacking the Americans. We, you guys had a legitimate gripe when we went after Al-Qaeda, and I'm interested in running my country in a way so that we never become a headache to you again, America. Then, all right, maybe this would be a legitimate conversation to have. As of this point, there's no indication that, you know, 
there's no reason to indicate that the Taliban, one, you know, is, is now willing to kick out any foreign terrorist group, and two, that they recognize what they've done is wrong. Three, that you'd like to think that if, you're, if we were going to give them something, and oh, by the way, a meeting with the president at Camp David is a, you know, that's a blue poker chip right there. That's, that's something rather valuable. This is a valuable bleeping thing, as uh, <laughs> Goyevich would put it. You know, you don't just give that to anybody. I mean, one of the, the you know, fascinating contrasts I, I put out that I was observing this morning is that we have a president who, based on these reports, is perfectly willing to meet face-to-face with the Taliban, but he canceled the trip to Denmark because he was in a snit over them refusing to sail Greenland, right? This is a situation where we're starting to become the best friend our enemies have ever had and one of the worst enemies our friends have ever had. Use some moral judgment about who you actually should be talking with and who shouldn't to say nothing of the fact that, you know, when there was that White House ceremony uh, with Israeli leaders and Arafat and all that, the president should not be handling the negotiations himself. Every president thinks that they're a brilliant negotiator. It never works out the way they expect. This is what you have diplomats for. This is why you have regional experts for. People who know this stuff backwards and forwards are going to know this better than a Manhattan real estate developer. And in a long history of mistakes by this administration, I think this is the one that is most morally abhorrent to me. All right, Jim, let's move on to our crazy martini now and go right back to the 2020 campaign, this time on the Republican side. We turn to Politico for this one. Four states are poised to cancel their 2020 GOP presidential primaries and caucuses, a move that would cut off oxygen to Donald Trump's long-shot primary challengers. Republican parties in South Carolina obviously home of a pretty prominent primary most four-year cycles, Nevada, Arizona, and Kansas are expected to finalize the cancellations and meetings this weekend, according to three GOP officials who are familiar with the plans. The moves are the latest illustration of Trump's takeover of the entire Republican Party apparatus. They underscore the extent to which his allies are determined to snuff out any potential nuisance in route to his renomination or even to deny Republican critics a platform to embarrass him. So, Jim, delegates obviously have to get allotted somehow. They could do state conventions or some other apparatus. Uh, the same article points out that Trump advisors are quick to, to state that the parties of an incumbent president seeking re-election have a long history of canceling primaries and note that it saves state parties money, particularly when there's not a competitive primary. Obviously, if you're William Weld or Joe Walsh or now Mark Sanford or anybody who supports them, you're not going to like this too much. So is this political expediency or is it looking like you don't want any opposition on the way to your coronation here? Yeah, this is a bad move, even though I can see where the South Carolina Republican Party and other state Republican parties are coming. First of all, it's not that there's no precedent for this sort of thing. There are a whole bunch of states that really didn't have a Republican primary in 2004 uh, when George W. Bush was running for re-election. Uh, a lot of Democrats, uh, you know, parties, state Democrats didn't have one in 2012 when Barack Obama. When you have an incumbent president, it's not unprecedented for a state party to say, you know what, the only other guy on the, on the uh, ballot is Irving Schmidlap. Yes, he has been running for lots of cycles. Um, you know, the you know the local mailman who's just woke up one day and decided he's supposed to be president of the United States. You know, that's nice. We're, we'll hold a convention or something. We're not going through the process of printing all the paper ballots and all that stuff. I see where they're coming from on this. And this is not, however, you know, a great, and people who listen to this podcast know we have no great love, or at least I have no great love, for Mark Sanford or Joe Walsh or William Weld. Nonetheless, I think this looks bad. I think this looks like a, uh, a fear on the part of the Trump team. I mean, if you're Trump, you probably want to have as many contests as possible 
because I think these guys are going to, you know, collectively, if they're lucky, they'll come up to 15%. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I, I said, uh, in res- discussing this topic a little while ago on this podcast, Greg, somebody wrote in and said, Jim, there are a whole bunch of independently Republicans in uh, New Hampshire. They're going to vote against Trump. They're going to vote for William Weld or something like that. Now, look, and I'm fairly certain this uh, reader or listener was not a relative of William Weld. Huh. So, you know, maybe I, I suppose that could happen. I, I think I think if you're an independent Republican, you're probably going to be voting in the Democratic primary because one, you can do that. Uh, to, you know, if you change your party registration soon enough, and it's it's more interesting. It's more you know, you know, you know, Trump's going to be the Republican nominee, barring some sort of you know uh, meteor crashing to Earth or something like that. So you might as well go with uh, you know if you have a strong preference for Biden or, or maybe Tulsi or Yang or one of those. Yeah, go 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 vote. Or maybe you maybe you want mischief. Yeah, let's go with Tom Steyer. You know, whatever you want to do. So I don't think this is really going to amount to anything. But I do think that saying, well, we're not going to do this. One, it does look like they're scared of a con- of a primary. And two, like I said, I think these guys are going to you know amount to fifteen percent if they're lucky. But I think it's a good idea to say, you know what, you want to vote against Trump in the primary? We're going to hold a primary, and you'll have that opportunity. Yes, there's an expense, but you know what? It seems kind of ridiculous when we have, you know, all the money being spent on, you know, having members of the military staying at the golf course in Scotland and uh, all the security being spent on, all the money spent on security at Mar-a-Lago and all that kind of stuff. Oh, you know, this having a primary would be just too expensive. Come on, guys. Just hold it. Let it go through. Trump's going to win by a healthy margin anyway. Otherwise, you give the Stanfords and Walshes and everybody else in the world a chance to play the victim. And I don't know about you, Greg, I'm just getting tired of this. <laughs> yeah, it's going to put Mark Sanford in an interesting spot because the main thrust of his campaign is to reduce government spending. But uh, that's the whole point for allegedly not wanting to host these primaries. So yeah, I mean, here's, you, know, you know what I'm okay with spending money on, Greg? Democracy. Elections. <laughs> it's kind of important. <laughs> Not the first thing we're like, you know, we don't need primaries. Those are a waste of money. <laughs> I would agree. I would agree wholeheartedly. And I, I hope the idea of debts and deficits, which is Sanford's calling card here, actually does get oxygen. He's clearly not going anywhere. And I don't think he's even suffering from the delusion that he's going anywhere. But we'll see if it actually gets talked about. Trump won't talk about it. And it's certainly not getting talked about on the other side where they're planning new spending to the trillions of dollars level. So good times. Jim, happy Monday. Yeah. Uh, how, how long till Friday, Greg? It's tomorrow, right? <laughs> Keep thinking that. Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.